0: Between 2019 and 2023, America's going to spend uh, over $400 billion on agricultural subsidies. What this does globally is it artificially lowers the price of goods and distorts the price mechanism Um, and ending ending subsidies, uh, especially on products that African producers uh, make, would make African countries more competitive, increase incomes.
1: Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, will China dominate Africa? Sub-Saharan Africa consists of 46 countries, 9 million square miles and over 1 billion people. And unlike much of the rest of the world, its population is expected to keep growing over the coming years. This has led to a a battle for Africa with various influence operations from China's Belt and Road Initiative to President Biden declaring himself all in on Africa's future at a summit last month. To discuss Africa's economic trajectory and the geostrategic wrangling, I'm very excited to be joined by the IEA's own Alexander Hammond. He's a free trade fellow here at the IEA, as well as the director of the Initiative for African Trade and Prosperity, which is an IEA project. Alex, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Matt.
1: So before we get on to some of the, the latest uh dynamics going on in terms of economic development in Africa, I'm interested if you give us, I suppose, a little bit of background, a little bit of history in terms of Africa's development over recent decade Because I, th- I think there's it goes through different periods of kind of hope and optimism and then then pessimism and, and negativity. Uh, w- what is the the I suppose the biggest development opportunity uh and in saying that the, the most behind continent uh, in the world?
0: Yeah, um, I th- don't think it's kind of surprising that our perceptions of Africa are sometimes, we're not sure what to make of it, right? Um, and I think that makes sense. I mean, throughout the 1980s, um, some of our viewers would have seen Bob Geldof on their on their screens uh, surrounded by famine-stricken Ethiopian children uh, and raising money for live aid. But 1990s were dominated uh, with stories about so many wars, and Rwandan genocide, civil wars in Burundi, Chad, Congo, DRC, Djibouti, Eritrea, Algeria, Mozambique, I could go on. Um, and then I guess maybe into the 2000s, we then also saw probably one of the biggest or maybe the first uh, big online social media campaign behind a cause, which was Kony 2012, um, which depicted a Ugandan warlord um, who abducted children and to be honest, he was a bit of a third-rate warlord even then, uh, not nearly the biggest. Certainly problem. got a lot of
1: attention at the time uh, for those for those who were early early on the days. The first kind of viral, so I always found it quite entertaining in the sense that it seemed to get a lot of very young people very pro-American intervention in this specific case. But that's a bit of an aside.
0: Yes, it's it's it, it is an aside, but I really do think it fundamentally kind of changed the internet quite substantially. It was the first case. Uh, People can get behind, show how morally virtuous they are by wearing various bands or T-shirts and go out protesting to light up the night, I think the campaign was. Um, And yeah, I think everything on the internet has kind of come from that. So those are our common depictions. And in the year 2000, The Economist called it the hopeless continent on a front page spread and said the new new millennia has brought more disaster than hope to Africa. But then at the same time, we, 10 years later or 11 years later, The Economist did a front page spread uh, coining the term Africa rising and said uh, the hopeless continent is hopeless no longer or something along those lines. And that's kind of what I think our perceptions are at at the moment. So while we, we see that, we should also remember there has been immense progress, especially in the last 20 or so years. Uh, GDP has increased by about four times in the last 20 years, and that the population has only doubled in that time. Average incomes in the last 20 years are up about 30, 40 percent. Extreme poverty is down by 18 percent. And that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but that is hundreds of millions of people when we're talking about sub-Saharan Africa. And infant infant mortality rates have halved too.
1: Yeah, so this is very much part of, I suppose, a broader story of, of human progress. We've, we've heard a lot about China, a little bit about India, but we've heard far less about the progress that has happened um, across Africa in terms of life expectancies, infant mortality um, and, and dying from disease. There, there does seem to be quite a good kind of positive Economic story there over the recent decades. Now I don't know whether that's kind of slowed in the last few years because of COVID and Ukraine. And you know, does it does it look a bit more bleak today than it did uh, a few years ago, or are I, I things kind of on the right track? To from from your perspective.
0: Well, well, that's a great question. I think it's a bit mixed. So what we should realise is, in the last twenty to thirty years, the economic freedom of the world rankings, which ranks how free economies are. Um, as well as the World Bank doing business report before it was ended a year or two ago. Africa was improving among those metrics very uh, strongly. I mean, their economic freedom score out of 10 went from four to 4.7 to 6.4-ish. Um, freedom to trade and sound money rose even more exponentially than that. Um, and the World Bank report shows that things like Africa's regulatory environment is much improved, construction permits are far easier, access to electricity is up, ease of paying taxes is all up. So economically in the last 20 years, at least uh, policy-wise, it's been doing quite well. But that's a stark contrast to um, more government-related trends rather than economic. Many African rulers have found ways to get round constitutional checks and balances, remain in power far longer than they said they would, and abuse their power too. And rule of law indicators amongst most African countries have remained largely unchanged in the last 20 or so years, and in many cases, um, and some some significant cases, have declined. So we, we've got this weird, uh, we're in this weird spot of economically, it's on the right track for sure. If we continued this for another 20 years, it would be, uh, as free as much as Europe economically but when we're looking at government trends that really isn't the case. Is, is the concern there's...
1: then that inevitably you're going to run up against institutional barriers to moving from kind of low to mid to higher income. I think it's very hard typically for countries without very stable kind of rule of law system, for example, to in- lead to big kind of investments. And it's, then it's very hard to see kind of productivity improvements um, across the economy. And, and from a development perspective, kind of development 101, if you, if you don't get the institutions right, uh, you're going to struggle to get much further development. Now, you've done some work, uh, quite a lot of work on the African free trade, um is, uh, agreements um i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that before we kind of get on to china in terms of i suppose a positive institutional uh, move
0: yes um uh, before i go on to that i should just say about the contrast between economic freedom and uh kind of human freedom and government rule is this was something that really uh concerned george aieti who's a great uh, african who, who was a great african classical liberal historian and economist um, Later in his life, he was very concerned that Africa was becoming economically freer, but the institutions weren't catching up. And he thought, he he actually said several times that Africa can't develop if it just does that. Uh, Institutional freedoms have to come first. Um, So with the economic, sorry, with the African continental free trade area, this is a really interesting um, agreement. So it was first opened for signatures in 2018. And its main goal is to remove 97% of all tariffs on goods traded between African states. Um, And so far, it's doing fairly well, considering it's only been around for about for less than five years. We've got out of the 55 African Union member states, uh, 43 have ratified it through their parliaments completely, um, which is an immense is really quite immense. It's the largest free trade area by number of countries in the world. And it represents a few things. I think especially when it's a project of the African Union, the free trade area. And when the organization of African unity was first created in the 1960s, which is the uh, predecessor for the African Union, it was founded really on the basis of African socialism. And they believed that they needed to close themselves off from the rest of the world, And the only way you can really, I think Kwame Nkrumah, who was Ghana's first leader who helped found it, he said, African socialism is needed to realize the African personality. And that's really what the organization was focused on. Yet we fast forward um, about uh, 50 years or so. And the successor of that organization is now pushing free trade. And Paul Kagame, there's a lot of problems with Paul Kagame. But when he was the president of the African Union and introduced the free trade area. He's saying he's saying things like free trade is necessary to unleash Africa's potential. And that he's an avid free trader. So even if they don't actually mean what they're saying, um, I think it shows an immense ideological shift in the continent since the 1960s. Um, and that ideological shift really started following the fall of the, so- of the Soviet Union uh, in the early 1990s, which bankrolled a lot of African socialist dictators. So when the Berlin Wall fell, a lot of African states had to reintegrate into a global economy and saying, uh, at least governments outright saying they're socialist or communist, uh, wasn't very cool anymore.
1: So on the, uh, I suppose, the successor in geostrategic uh, considerations, a lot of what we hear about uh, Africa these days, particularly from a kind of a foreign policy or geostrategic perspective, is about um, the role of China in, in the continent. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the Belt of Road Initiative, about Chinese investment, building roads and parliaments uh, across the continent, um, there's this discussion about debt trap diplomacy, trying to um, uh, basically create liabilities for African countries, and, and certainly not just Africa, all across Asia and the rest of the world as well, but particularly that's become a big Focus in Africa. I was wondering if you could speak to a bit. What is kind of Africa's, focus so China's focus in Africa? Um, is this becoming the way Africa is going to develop, and it, it's, it's going to become a kind of Chinese outpost and, and anti-Western in the way you might say historically was? Uh, its subcountries were quite attached to the Soviet Union, and that the, these countries and their leaders will will take that Chinese money that's given relatively freely and, and spend it potentially corruptly or not particularly. Um, good investments when it comes to infrastructure?
0: Yeah, there's really a lot to get to with China's involvement in Africa. Um, we should start by saying that Chinese investment in Africa is fairly unique to investment from the rest of the world um, because it is mostly driven by the interest of the Chinese government, not the commercial interests of the Chinese private sector. Therefore, unlike Western lenders, China is then quite regularly and happy to back projects that are unlikely to make a profit. Um, one great example of this is a railway in Kenya stretching from Nairobi to Mombasa. So Kenya came forward in 2014 and uh, opened this project to the world and saying, who liked like to invest in it? The World Bank took one look at it and realized it would never make a profit. So that meant all Western lenders turned away from it, no chance. However, China was very happy to step up. They initially spent uh, 3.2 billion on it, and then various expansions or uh, things costing more than they should have meant they spent almost five billion on it. And what are the results of it? Uh, each year now, it's it's all operational. It loses about 200 million each year. Um, I was actually in Nairobi just last month and saw this uh, railway track, and we were driving along it for about a couple of hours. Didn't see a single. Uh, Train, but that's not unusual, you know, some train stations. But then, as I was approaching um, where I was going uh, on the afternoon climbing a mountain, there was a stop, uh, a railway uh, stop for it. And you look around and it's in the middle of absolutely nowhere. There's, I'm not joking, there's a, about a dozen shacks or so, one or two uh, pastoral farmers herding their cows. And that was it. And there's a nice, shining train station there. Not a big one, but just the small one there and that's i don't see how that's ever going to be used the tickets are fairly expensive far out of reach for the people who live there um but i think that sums it up quite well and also in kenya very recently in the last couple of years there's a highway a toll road ab- uh, above the city which can get you from one side of nairobi to the other very very quickly but again a lot of people can't afford to use it so we we, we used it a few times it probably took from halfway to the city to outside the city it was about three dollars but for most people they can't do that so they were underneath the highway on another road completely stuck in traffic um but talking to a lot of the local people they really do think that they need it they need these infrastructure projects in order to develop and i don't know if that's because they look at the west see all the trains and and the nice roads and think oh that's what we need to develop there's maybe we don't think about policy for now we just think about these big projects. But ultimately, to wrap up on the railway, who, whose fault is it that the they spent almost $5 billion on a project that loses money? You could say it was China was being uh, quite predatory by uh, pe- offering to pay for it. But at the end of the day, it is actually the Kenyan government's fault. No one forced them into doing it. And you could argue there's a lot of corruption. So there's a lot of uh, special interests and people who get a fair bit of money from accepting these deals. But at the end of the day, it's the Kenyan government that's stuck with his debt now mm. um, and everyone's the who are gonna have to deal with it going forward
1: yes yeah, so i find these these infrastructure projects quite fascinating in a few senses I'm, um, there, there's there i'm sure there are cases where they are economically productive but if something is economically productive and profitable they'll probably get western funding so a lot of this kind of ends up going to these showpiece infrastructure projects obviously quite expensive often built using chinese labor um they seem in the first instance to be a big liability for china i mean it's it's not like they're going to get a good return on that railway by by the sounds of it uh, and and therefore you've got to wonder If there was any kind of democratic accountability in China, there'd probably be some questions raised about why a country that still has tens of millions of people in abject poverty is spending billions of uh, yuan buying railways in in Kenya that no one's using. It seems like a complete and nutty misallocation of resources. Um, In terms of the impact domestically, it it does seem to be like part of this broader story that if if you focus on aid and you kind of give governments money it it doesn't create economic activity it kind of leads to corruption or inefficiencies or or misallocation of resources rather than building up kind of enterprising economies so it doesn't seem like it's it's particularly good for development purposes do you think though it is in in any way effective in terms of I guess I suppose buying influence I think a lot of concern in in America and in the West is that Okay, well, maybe these aren't really economically rational. China uh, won't lead to the development of Africa, but certainly we're buying votes at the UN or in other kind of international organizations yeah. is the real purpose and goal of this. It's kind of an influence peddling operation, and the West is falling behind because it's, it's not engaging properly in, the, in this kind of operation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great point. So I think their motives are, as you said, trying to build a voting block in organizations like the UN. Uh, to invest their various, capital from their trade surpluses and find employment for Chinese labor too. Um, However, I think when we talk about influence, we should look just beyond the giving money for projects and then a country owing them money. And a great story of this is the African Union building. And it was built in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia in 2012. And the Chinese built it. And five years later in 2017, in January, one of the workers at the, organi- at the African Union discovered that every night around uh, midnight to 2 AM, all their servers would do something mysterious and start sending data to Shanghai. So they, what, they managed to get some, I believe it was the Algerian uh, army involved to try and debug the place. And they found it was just littered with microphones, with bugs, and I think there's some small cameras as well. So. Imagine if China's for half a decade has been collecting that information. That I think not formally in regards to on the world stage, but that means there's a, they have a lot of probably dirt on a lot of people in high positions. Um, and Africa's sorry, China's built around. I think it's around fifteen or so parliament buildings across Africa. Um, so there's there's definitely this influence uh personally rather than just governments owing money. Um but all in all I should say as well Chinese investment, we should keep it in perspective a little bit too. Um, So in the last 20 years it is true it's exploded. It's gone from about um 75 million dollars a year to about 4.2 billion dollars uh in in the most recent data we have whereas the US is just 2.1 so it's investing twice what the US is at the moment. And Singly, China is Africa's largest uh, trading partner, if we're just looking at countries. Saying that, if we look at total foreign direct investment stock in Africa, quite staggeringly, it's only fourth in, in the world at 44 billion. And no one would guess this. So that's quite a good uh, kind of a pop quiz question. But the Netherlands has the most foreign direct investment stock in Africa, followed by the UK, France, then China, then the US. So. Sure, it's catching up quickly, but right now uh, it's nowhere near the biggest overall. Uh, and uh, finally, to wrap up the trade section, is sure China is Africa's biggest trading partner if we're just looking at countries, but the EU trades more than 2.5 times more with Africa than China. So if we're looking at more regions rather than just countries, the mm-hmm. EU has far greater influence than uh, China does in regards to trade.
1: So in response to a lot of that, uh, I suppose, Chinese activity in Africa, uh, just recently, the President Biden in December hosted a, I think it was a, a US-Africa summit, announced a whole bunch of new investment and trade from the, the US into Africa. I was wondering if you to talk through what, what did Biden announce and is, is this important and meaningful?
0: Yeah, um, so to start with, I don't think it's very important and meaningful. So it, it was the first US-Africa summit since 2014. Um, China has them every two to three years, I believe. Um, I think when Trump came into the White House, uh, he he wasn't interested in hosting one, Um, but they've started again. They had a few main objectives. I believe their four main ones were to foster openness and open societies, which sounds great, Uh, deliver democratic and security dividends, advance pandemic recovery and support various climate-related things like adaption and conservation. Ultimately, I don't think the summit was very good. It announced a lot of money to, to be invested in Africa, several billions, but they didn't really do... There's a lot of other policies that the US should have pursued um, if they're actually interested in helping Africa rather than just throwing money at it. For example, they could expand AGOA, which is the... African Growth and Opportunity Act. It's like a free free trade agreement of sorts they've got with African countries that allow duty-free duty free access to the American market. They should end subsidies um, for, for their domestic farming, which is keeping millions of Africans stuck in poverty. And some could easily argue killing thousands of Africans every year by doing that. Um, but from a summit, it seems the answer to uh, America is to copy China, invest more, give more aid, um, and then also try and help ensure a green-powered industrial revolution like like that's ever uh, happened anywhere in the world before.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like you, you're trying to... Leap, leapfrog, I think, is the phrase I sometimes use through The the kind of industrial development straight to green development doesn't seem particularly realistic. But I think I'll just unpack this a little bit more because in a sense, and and we hear this unfortunately, I think quite a lot from from the Biden administration is trying to beat China by acting like China, kind of playing the same tactic in terms of doling out money, uh, rather than playing to where the West's comparative advantage is in terms of encouraging trade. Uh, as well as good institutions. I mean, there's, there's the classic arguments about aid itself. Now, I think there are some uh, you know, friends of ours who are a bit more sympathetic to aid, who will say, well, aid is not what it used to be these days. You know, the, the British different aid budgets actually quite well spent and, and quite strategically spent on things like w- w- young girls education uh, in Africa. But in, in terms of what is going to have the biggest economic impact, it's probably not that aid, it's, it's stimulating private sector activity, um, which can be contrary to aid, because if aid just means a larger state um, and more interventionist policies um, and empowers the corrupt administrations, then you're not going to get the kind of private sector economic development, the job creation that's, that's going to lead to the prosperity. So I suppose that the question is, um, what can be done to encourage that? I I think you've spoken about tariffs, spoken about removing U.S. agricultural subsidies. Um, What else can the West do to encourage development and and I suppose practically compete with China's approach, but through a more Western mindset and frame?
0: Yeah, so I think we should talk about foreign aid just for a second, Um, because there's a lot of work that has been done by organizations that are in favor of aid, like the IMF and the World Bank. But if fundamentally shown that aid fails to be effective in the vast majority of cases. Um, for example, there's an IMF paper from 2005, and a quote from that is, aid inflows have a systematic adverse effect on the country's competitiveness. In 2012, Ban Ki-moon, who was the director of the uh, World Bank at the time, He claimed that, in the previous year, 30% of aid failed to reach its final destination. Um, Then Paul Collier at the University of Oxford found about 40% of Africa's military spending is inadvertently financed by aid. Um, Aid repeatedly backs unsavory regimes and, honestly, it makes government's recipient uh, more sorry makes governments accountable to aid agencies rather than their citizens, um, which means it is often a disincentive for political reform, especially where a lot of the um, kind of the provisions regarding uh, structural adjustment focus on economic policies rather than uh, political reforms. But what else can um, America do? I think mostly subsidies is a really important one. Um, between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty three Americas is going to spend uh, over four hundred billion dollars on agricultural subsidies and what this does globally is it artificially lowers the price of goods and distorts the, the price mechanism um, and ending it ending subsidies uh, especially on products that African producers uh, make would make African countries more competitive more increase incomes and even Oxfam found that by artificially lowering the price of cotton, just cotton, um, American subsidies harm about 10 million people in just West Africa. So just cotton, just in West Africa, it harms around 10 million people. Um, and the World Bank found that this Central and West Africa could make more than 250 million per year if domestic farms stopped being subsidized. Is, is it a similar
1: story for, for the EU and 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 what options are there for the UK in this respect, post-Brexit, obviously the the US has uh, got quite substantial agricultural subsidies, but so does the EU through the the Common Agricultural Policy, as as well as the UK uh, post-Brexit policies seem quite similar in kind.
0: Yeah, Uh, the EU has probably been unfairly focusing on America, not only because I'm uh, talking to you from there today, but also because the subsidies the American gives are a lot larger than uh, the EU. So the EU spends around $170 billion a year, whereas America um, is spending a lot more. Um, But Brexit does create an interesting opportunity to reverse this. Um, But of course, if we're talking about realpolitik, the chances of this happening, the farmers are a very effective uh, lobbying movement. So what um, you're saying,
1: Alex, is the, the NFU wants to keep Africans in poverty, and that if, if you want to encourage development, we need to fight back against that, uh, the Farmers Union, and, and in, in favour of lower cost, high quality food from all over the world.
0: Well, that'd be great if uh, any of the viewers want to start a campaign with me about how the NFU is keeping Africans poor. Let's do it. Um, I'm completely behind you. Um, and, and with subsidies as well, we... It often goes to not poor, uh, poor farmers in the EU or the UK or in the US. Um, in 2020 in America, farmers derived almost 40% of their income from uh, subsidies and US farmers already have an income that is about a third higher than the average. So it's not going to poor people who are in desperate need. Sure, there'll be a lot of disruption if subsidies end, but I think it will help millions of people elsewhere in the world.
1: So the key lesson is Africa on the way to development. Uh, thanks to economic freedom. Uh, we could, the best way for the West to kind of respond to China's geostrategic efforts are uh, free of trade, opening up our markets, not through more aid. So thank you so much, Alex and Hammond for joining the IEA podcast to discuss this very fascinating and important topic. Um, if you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider, or you can watch this podcasting or other content from the IEA on the IEA's YouTube channel.